What's up, guys? JD here. And today I am having a conversation with Enzo Vardaro, co-owner and senior vice president at Art Italia Group. Now, Art Italia is doing old world manufacturing in a new world way, bringing technology and innovation to the art of making stuff. We're talking about the chairs that you sit on at a restaurant, the box that you grab your Amazon package out of, mailboxes, displays at Walmart, all over the place. This is such a cool company, $175 million revenue business and growing fast. 500 employees. The company was started by Enzo's father and uncles and is now in the second generation. Enzo and his brothers run it. And you are going to get an inside look at just a badass family business that is growing and going strong. I love these kinds of stories. Before we get to that, I want to remind you all that if you like this content, if you like the fire that I'm bringing, you got to show me love by subscribing on Apple, on Spotify, leave a rating or review. If you're listening to the content and you're not letting me know it, that's not good. I want to know that you love this stuff. Leave a rating or review, smash that subscribe button. Here is Enzo Vardaro. You're listening to Making It with John Davids. Enzo, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me on, John. So you run a company called Art Italia Group. And really interesting because family business, been around for a number of decades. And it looks like you sort of grew up in the business. And I'm not sure if you were always going to be in the business or if you had to kind of struggle to figure out your own path. But why don't we start off with where the company is today, quick snapshot, and then we'll rewind and, and tell the story. Yeah, sure. So as you had mentioned, the company's been around for almost 40 years now. We're headquartered out of Montreal. We also have offices and facilities in New Jersey, in California, and in Shaman, China. We employ over 500 employees. And uh, last year, our sales hit $175 million, Okay, and then growing. Wow. And uh, yeah. And... Was this company, obviously, for over 40 years, I'm sure there have been a lot of different moves, but was it bootstrapped? Are you guys owned by an investment group? No, it's completely privately owned. So today, the company is owned by my father, my two brothers, and myself. And so definitely the company grew over the years through acquisition. So we, uh, in the past, we first started off as a, as a custom metal manufacturing company back 40 years ago. And then over the years, as we worked and grew the company, we saw some potential opportunities with uh, various vendors that did business for us in other sectors. So, for example, in the wood industry, right? So, you know, we'd make manu- we'd manufacture metal products, some of which were, for example, metal chairs. And those metal chairs either had upholstered seats or wood seats. And over the years, because we'd give these vendors so much business, we just thought it would be better for us in order to control our destiny through pricing and also quality to just acquire those vendors and then vertically integrate them within our operation. How long into the business was that first acquisition? I want to say that probably 10 years in, right? I mean, if I could back up and give you the whole picture, the whole story, please. It's, 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 it is pretty amazing what uh, my father and his brothers were able to accomplish. So in the mid to late 70s, they immigrated from Italy, from beautiful southern Italy in a small town very close to Naples, uh, a town called Caserta, a uh, very, very nice place, part of the Campania region, beautiful. It's where the Amalfi Coast is. So just to, it gives you a picture of where, where they came from. And so, you know, unfortunately, back in the 60s and 70s, 
there was an ongoing recession in Europe, uh, and especially in Italy, and Southern Italy got impacted quite a bit. And so obviously there's a huge immigration or migration of uh, Italian immigrants into Canada, and most of which actually went to Toronto <laughs> back in the 60s and 70s. And then I guess there was another influx of, of immigrants into Montreal in the 70s and, and 80s. Okay, And so they found their way here into Montreal. I guess they, they came in the summertime and, and thought it was <laughs> a nice place to live. And, and so they started working for a small, months. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? And so they started working for a small metal manufacturing company that actually made wire products. Now, wire products, fairly simple to make. And wire products consists of or is composed of, it could be anything from a, a wire peg hook you see in store or a wire lampshade or a wire form for a vase, that kind of stuff, right? And so they worked for this very small company that was family owned. And after a couple of years, uh, the owner made them a proposition to my father and his brothers. Okay, so they, they, they were four. Uh, to buy over the business. And so my father and my uncle has bought over that small little business and over the years grew into what it is today. You know, So from literally five employees in a small little garage to 500 plus employees. Actually, last year we grew to 550 employees. And that definitely was through a lot of hard work, sacrifice, reinvestment, and, and obviously also acquiring other businesses in different areas. And so... I, so I was going to ask, so I, sorry, just go back to what the company was. You made wire. So can you explain what that is again? Yeah, so wire products basically is anything from a peg hook you would see in, in store. A peg hook basically is a wire, almost like a face-out, they call it, that holds products. Right. I'm sure you've seen them all over yep. Walmart and Target. So that was one of the you products. Put the scotch tape on the hook. <laughs> pretty much. <laughs> pretty much. But um, other products within the wire industry would be products like tables, wire tables or wired chair frames, wire lampshades, that kind of stuff, right? Interesting. And I love hearing kind of obscure things like that because little things that are in the background of our lives are actually big industries yeah. and critical to actually yeah. make the whole world function. Exactly, exactly. And uh, it's funny how they just they fell into it because when they lived in Italy, they were businessmen. They were brokers. They would buy and sell product of, of all types, right? And so I think that was what got them into where they are today because we never really just relied on, on manufacturing one product in our company. And really, that's, I think, what made us who we are today. So back in the day, in the 70s and 80s, yeah, we produced a lot of wire products and a lot of tubular type products. So when I say tubular, it's a metal type of, of product that you know, is made to make tubular frame chairs, tubular frame beds, that kind of stuff, right? But then in the 80s, we saw this huge shift where all these products went from being domestically made to being produced overseas in China, mm. right? And so we saw this uh, huge decrease in product. And so at that point, my father and my uncle said, okay, you know, we need to find a way and create other products and look at other industries that are recession-proof or also that are not affected by the movement of manufacturing to other areas in the world because of the, the decrease in costs, right? And so at that point in the 80s, that's when they switched from being fully or solely a, a furniture manufacturer to becoming a manufacturer of display fixtures. So that's mm -hmm. another, obscure, another obscure, crazy world, right? <laughs> display fixtures. So display fixtures basically is anything that holds a product that is for sale in a retail store. Mm -hmm. So just to be clear though, the wire product that you're selling and the tubular product that you're selling and now the display case product you're selling, you could sell all those things to Walmart effectively, right? Oh, 100%. And Walmart is one of our clients, actually. Right. So, yeah. so I guess what I'm saying though, is you're actually coming up with new products to sell to the same customer effectively. Pretty much. And I think that also led to our growth. And so 
when we first started off, as I mentioned, we were an OEM manufacturer. We produced parts and pieces out of wire and tube, basically. We then evolved in producing furniture, which is still one of our largest uh, divisions today. Okay, we actually operate four divisions, which I'll get into. And so we went from an OEM manufacturer to a furniture manufacturer to then a display manufacturer and then a material handling cart manufacturer, which I'll get into. And today, believe it or not, my company actually manufactures all of the mailboxes for right? So all those great mailboxes you see outside that everybody loves to hate <laughs> is manufactured here. We didn't design them, we just make them. Right, so <laughs> we're we're so we're a lot of these. I'm sure there's individual stories across the board, but we're yeah. a lot of these acquisitions where you said, "Hey, we can buy it," and then we're in that business. Or was it a client comes to you and says, "Hey, guys, can you make this for us?" How did you get, figure out that's, all these different it, little niches? I think you hit the nail on the head. That, that's exactly what it was. Right at first, it was a lot of word of mouth. They were four passionate guys that love to build and make stuff. You know, they were designers in their own rights, although not educated. They were amazing innovators, all four. And so, yeah, so clients would come to them, people would come to them to make stuff. And then through word of mouth and obviously getting a good name in the business in terms of uh, having a good price and good quality product and, and good lead time, which, which, by the way, those three elements is still the foundation of the company and how it operates today. So my company is founded on and based on lead time. I mean, if I don't ship a project out on time, if that store or that restaurant doesn't get open on time, I'm not getting another order. Pricing, obviously, that probably should be the first. If I'm not, uh, if our price isn't competitive, we're not going to be getting business. And quality, obviously. I mean, if we don't ship out a good product, then you know. So my company is based on those. We call it three-legged stool mm -hmm. methodology, which a lot of companies. Which I'm sure you make also. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, right. <laughs> we do actually. There was one thing I forget what it's called, but there was one a material thing. Can you explain what that business is? Yeah. Okay. So let me back up and tell you that you know our company now has we we run and operate four divisions in the company. So first and foremost, furniture, which is where we started. And that's furniture mainly for commercial use. And so we sell furniture, custom furniture to companies like McDonald's and Starbucks and Tim Hortons and so on and so forth within the commercial restaurant and hotel industry. So restaurant and hotel is one. Retail is the next, which is custom display fixtures and POPs and complete store environments. The third one is material handling. So that's what you just mentioned right now. So material handling carts basically are racks with wheels under it. So uh, with the increase and in growth in e-commerce and logistics, okay, these operators needed material handling carts to move around parcels and products within their distribution centers. And that also led to us selling back to our retailers for their distribution centers and for their back of store. So when a rack is empty of product, they got to bring the product from the back of the store to the front of the store. And they use our carts to do that. Right. Interesting. All right. yeah. Now, do you also, and maybe this fits into a different bucket, but I know, so a friend of mine runs a company called Indochino, which is an mm. e-commerce company that sells suits. I don't know if they're a client of yours. Okay. Oh, so. Not yet, but uh, I'm definitely a fan of their, their product. I, what a good word. If, if Drew Green is listening to this, <laughs> please uh, call, call uh, Enzo. So I know when they put up their stores, so it's an e-commerce company that does these stores all over yes. the US, Canada, and elsewhere. And they tell me that when they put up their stores, it's like three, four days and a store is up. And the way they right. do it is they make it modular. So every single thing right. is like out of a box up. Is that the sort of thing you're talking about where everything's on wheels, everything's modular? 
Not really, not for that. I mean, for the retail sector, yes, we do a lot of uh, designs and manufacturing of modular fixtures, like you just mentioned, and that is the way to go, especially for a company like Indochino that's that's growing really quickly and uh, they want to make sure that they have a display manufacturer that can produce a modular and versatile system that they can produce in, in volume, keep in stock and ship as needed but also to assemble and install in store as fast as possible. What material handling carts and racks are basically is what you see in back of store. Actually, you don't even see them in back of store, but uh, visually, you, don't as customer, you don't see them, but it's basically, it's more of an operation tool. So a retail store will use the material handling racks to move product either around the store, but also within their distribution centers. So for example, one of our clients in that world is Amazon. So Amazon has these huge warehouses. And they have to obviously pick and pack from their racks when they get an order, and they got to put it in a cart and then move it to a pick and pack station. So my company supplies them with those moving carts, but also with the pick and pack tables, Mm -hmm. right? And so that's more of an industrial type product that we produce, but we do a lot of cross-selling within our customers as well. Of course. How do you guys approach sales? Because I know a lot of people listening to this are, you know, they hear this big company, 500 plus employees, a lot of big clients that, that you're name dropping, which is awesome. When you're selling into an Amazon, a Walmart, a Tim Hortons, is it a very long drawn out sales cycle? Is it a relationship driven sales cycle? Is it a referral system? Do you have guys on the phone dialing for dollars? How, what does yeah, that mean? Like? Honestly, it varies tremendously. It can be anything from, you know, word of mouth. Like you mentioned, right? Uh, you have a contact in Nishino. Well, sometimes it'll happen that way where somebody just puts us in contact. So, I mean, we do have a great sales team. We have over 15 sales representatives throughout the US and, and Canada, obviously. And so uh, a lot of it's done through either contact, cold calling, references is huge for us. I, and, and I think references goes a long way. So within our business, you know, there's a lot of growth and a lot of opportunities. And so our contacts typically go from either one retailer or one restaurant chain to another. And so because we've done such a great job and we continue to do such a great job, they bring us with them a lot of times. So I'll say that's word of mouth or reference. Okay. Mm-hmm. But we do a ton of trade shows. You know, we've done trade shows all over the world, mainly in the US. Okay. For every industry, by the way, we do between 15 and 20 trade shows a year. Those could be actual legit expositions where you have a, a huge 50 by 50 booth, or it could be a conference where you're just there and you're talking or giving a, a TED talk, for lack of a better, better phrase, yeah. about our product. An and inspiring our speech. Exactly, right? So it happens in multiple ways. But nowadays, it's all through social media, email campaigns. You know, we're, we're very, as you've seen, we're very active on LinkedIn because you know the products we're selling... I'm not gonna lie, it's hard to sell because I'm not selling a product. I'm not saying, here, John, buy this chair. Everything we produce is custom. The only right. product we produce standard or standard products would be our automated parcel locker, which is our fourth division, by the way. So uh, the fourth division and the last division for now is, our, is mail and parcel. So our company produces a keyed mailboxes, but also automated parcel lockers. So mm. you know those smart lockers you see when you walk into a, a store, you've been seeing a lot more and more. We produce those as well. Okay. So the, those, those are like for Amazon pickups, for example. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. For e-commerce, basically. Right. right. And it's not only pickups, also returns. So our, our system is quite unique. Yeah. You've seen lockers everywhere, but ours again are built in such a way where you could actually either pick up or return in the box. Got it. So I also see uh, another one on here, COVID-19. Uh, yeah, yeah. So that, that was uh, unfortunately something we had to do. I mean, obviously, yeah, we wanted to help. 
a lot of our clients unfortunately couldn't operate unless they had those wonderful plexiglass shields that everybody hated right but all of our clients were reaching out to us and saying hey we need help can you help us so and so those two weeks that we were shut down first a shut down i was stuck in my office at home sketching away i was just coming up with by the way i'm a designer i specialize in design marketing and sales for the company but I spent the better part of two weeks just creating a boatload of products that could help our clients operate. And so literally within, I'd say two weeks, yeah, we shifted our production from producing metal, wood, and plastic to only producing plastic. Now that was either plastic shields, dividers, obviously selling masks, uh, PPE, right? And so we had a huge, huge uh, slew of uh, products we were selling for that, which financially we did very well with. And actually, it kept our sales steady throughout COVID. Where a lot of our competitors in the industry, the sales dropped in certain markets. We were very blessed that we had some amazing commitments from our clients, uh, especially most of which were deemed to be necessary to be open. Okay. And so, you know, because we're dealing with restaurant chains and and, and, uh, grocery chains and retail chains, uh, they had to be open. Right. Did that require a lot of retooling, though, like to make what you normally make all of a sudden to make this COVID supply? Actually, not really, because you know our machines are CNC operated. A lot of our production facility is we have a fairly automated system, right? Mm-hmm. And because we were so used to producing custom products, it wasn't hard for us at all, right? So whether I'm producing a, a plexiglass display, for example, for a client, whether I'm producing a now plexiglass shield, it's the same thing. But what's great about that is that we hardly laid off anybody. I mean, we pretty much kept our entire staff on board and busy throughout those two years. Right. I mean, in the meantime, we still produced furniture and displays and mailboxes and all that fun stuff because everything we did and all the clients we do business with are, for the most part, recession proof. And, right. and that, that kind of goes back to the beginning of our, let's say, the infancy of the company from when we first started. We always made sure that we produced products and offered a service that was recession proof. Quick break here while I tell you about something really exciting I've been working on called the Business Essentials Kit. Here's the deal. I get asked all the time, John, how do you run your business effectively? What's the best way to build a website? How do I get a branded email? How do I save on legal fees? How do I manage my social media? So what I've done is I put a kit together for you for free. You can download it at johndavids.com with all the tools and services that I use to run my business. Get it right now for free at johndavids.com. How much of what you do is trade... uh, I'm not going to say trademark, but like, how much of what you make is a commodity where it's just like anybody could make this if they had the machines we have versus know-how, trade secrets, or or even patents. So only we can make this. Okay. So we definitely own a lot of patents. We own a lot of patents. I mean, nowadays, patents aren't as important as they used to be. I think nowadays, it's probably patents are more important or widely used within the technology industry. When it Mm -hmm. comes to a product... You know, you'll change one thing and you pretty much get over the patent for the most part. But we do a lot, a lot of patents because we have created a lot of products within the retail industry that didn't exist before. Yes, we've been copying in the past and, you know, we see our copies out there, but it's fine, you know, because we still produce them in volume for the most part. But commodities, not so much. Yes, we have competitors, which is fine. But uh, we're very unique in the sense that we manufacture metal, we manufacture wood, and we manufacture plastic. You know, we do our own finishing. It's very self-contained. But I'm going to say, yeah, we have competitors in the metal industry. We have competitors in the wood industry. We have competitors in the plastic industry. But nobody offers everything we offer. And on top of all that, we design. We design, we create, we engineer. 
And so that makes us very unique because we're a full turnkey service. You know, that, that phrase is used very often and it became kind of tacky, but uh, it's true, right? I mean, a client doesn't have to go to a design firm uh, and then to a metal guy and to a wood manufacturer, to a plastic manufacturer. They don't have to talk to 10 different people. They can come to us and we can take care of the entire project for them. Are you dealing, I mean, you mentioned plastic, metal, wood. So are you also very susceptible to commodity prices? And if there's any kind of shortage here, it's like, oh my God, we got to make 10,000 of these things. We need more wood. Yeah. You know, honestly, we're blessed that we're in Canada, as you can imagine, on the wood side. Metal side too, we have some amazing vendors, you know. But for the most part, we know, or over the years, we've come to realize that we do use a certain type of material in volume. And that goes across the board. You know, whether it's a, a certain type of plywood or a certain type of MDF or a certain type of solid surface or certain type of certain type of gauge or whatever it is, we buy in volume. You know, we buy in volume, we store at one of our warehouses, and then when we need, we use. But I don't think we've ever been affected by a material shortage per se, but we have been affected by cost increases. Mm-hmm. You know, that's so you 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 lock in a price with a client, and then let's say three months go by, and you say, "Oh my goodness, our costs are totally out of whack." And it, it, it does happen. It happens uh, more than you would think, unfortunately. But what's good about our company is that we value engineer everything we make. You know, so we can't control increased costs in material, but we can control how we produce this product. What I mean by that is, you know, if the cost goes up by you know fifteen percent of the material. On the overall cost, it probably represents, I'm just going to say anything, 5%, right? Okay, so we go back to our team and our, and, and our industrial engineers and our, and our actual mechanical engineers and say, okay, the cost went up 5%. Unfortunately, I'm locked in a contract for a year. I can't go back. I could go back, but the clients don't want to hear that, right? And what we'll do is say, okay, how can we value engineer this product? Uh, not to make it cheaper, but how can we make it more cost-effective for us? Instead of making it, for example, in this machine, can we make it in this machine? Instead of rolling it or running it in our second shift, which costs us more, could we run it in our first shift? And so we try to find ways to bring down that general initial cost. Yeah. People are often looking at costs in a very finite way. And they say, well, it'll cost this. But at the end of the day, if you're innovative, costs can change. You can figure oh, out different ways, different labor structures, different uh, material structures. 100%. Uh, yeah, um, different manufacturing uh, processes as well. Of course, of course. So let's talk about manufacturing a little more deeply here. You manufacture, you mentioned you have, I think, factories uh, you mentioned in Canada, the US, and China, I think you said. So, what is it like? I mean, I often talk on this podcast to people that are sort of in the digital business or the tech business, or or maybe they have retail stores, but you're making stuff. So first off, is it a very hard business? And is it is it more challenging as time goes by and more stuff is offshored? What's that been like over the last 40 years or 20 years that you've been doing it? It's not an easy business. I'm not going to lie to you. There's a lot of variables. And that's, that's what I mean by it's not an easy business. But things got easier in the progress of technology manufacturing. Like, you know, we are manufacturers first and foremost. Our machines, obviously, sorry. I'm going to give props to my employees because each one of them are, they're amazing. We have an amazing team, right? Really amazing team. And being as unique as we are, we've trained a lot of our employees to manufacture, to make what we have to get made. And so, yes, we have some local competitors, but because we're very specialized in what we do, we have to train anybody that comes in. So even if I get a welder, for example, that welds, for example, MIG welding, the MIG welding is a type of welding where you're adding metal to bond metal together. But I don't only do MIG welding here. I do TIG welding and do arc welding. We have robotic welding. I have laser welding now, which is a new technology. 
Mm-hmm. And so we have to train them on these processes, but also these machines. And it does two things. Number one, it helps them grow within the company and do better for themselves and us as well. But at the same time, it helps us retain employees. Listen, for a company of our size to not have a union in our industry is huge. Mm-hmm. And, and that's because we literally, when I say we treat everybody like family, I mean that we treat everybody very fair and very good. That's very important for us. But to go back to your original question, manufacturing is never easy. There's a lot of moving parts, but technology is helping a lot, right? We've always reinvested our profits in the factory, but now more and more, we're looking to evolve into industry 4.0. And what that is, is basically is, you know, any operation that we have that has manual labor associated to it, we're trying to find a way to circumvent that with the robotics. So instead of having somebody just put in a piece in a machine, okay, well, let me get a robotic arm to do that for us. And so it is becoming easier. There's a lot more onshoring, by the way. Okay, so ever since... Is, huh? Tons, tons. Like there's some clients that I never thought I'd produce their products domestically and more and more I'm doing it now. Or there's some products that I remember seeing as a kid in our plant back in the 80s. And I'm like, you know, I can't believe we're still producing these products here. And now that, that's what happened, unfortunately, with COVID, as everybody knows, lead times were extended, right? Tremendously. Uh, costs of freight skyrocketed. Like, you know, containers we were paying probably three, four, five thousand for in 2019, all of a sudden we're paying like 25,000. <laughs> I remember. <laughs> I, I remember Home Depot and Walmart getting their own freights and boats and ships because they oh, had yeah. to do. And uh, I remember. It took me a year. It was supposed to be a three-month wait on a couch. Ended up being a year. So it was it was nuts for a while there. I know. It, it was nuts. But what happened there is that a lot of our clients said, okay, which vendors could we rely on to produce stuff domestically? Because honestly, on most things we produce, there isn't a huge difference in cost between producing it overseas. When I say overseas, it's only China. It's also Vietnam and other areas that we deal with or we deal uh, in, excuse me. But at the same time, it's about speed to market. How fast can they get these products out to their stores? Like some of the clients we deal with want to get that store open sooner so they can start selling products sooner. And so sometimes that 10, 15, 20% difference for them doesn't really mean all that much in the grand scheme of things. But isn't there, I would imagine, producing something in Canada or the US versus producing something in Vietnam, your labor costs are, are completely different. But are you saying that it, it doesn't make a difference because then the shipping costs sat up? Exactly. At one point during COVID, certain products we're producing were at par. And it was amazing mm. to see, you know, but also the volume of the product. So for example, you know, anything that comes in from Asia, if you can't make it collapsible, if you can't like, you know, you, you've assembled Ikea furniture, right? Of course. There's a reason why it comes in what they call KV, which is knocked down, is because it saves space in a container, which drives down the overall cost. But anything of volume or anything that's voluminous is not worth producing in Asia anymore for the most part, depending on what material you're using, obviously. And so we produce that here. But what our company does and what we've learned to do more and more is it's called shared manufacturing. So for example, I'll do or I'll produce a table for a client. Okay. And certain products are more cost effective building here, but other components and products are more cost effective producing in China. So what we'll do is we'll produce those parts and pieces in Asia, bring them over to Montreal or Jersey or California, wherever we assemble, and then assemble and, and ship. So yeah. that's shared manufacturing. I've heard of that. I mean, when I when I have learned in the past about how cars are built, you know, the steering wheels are built in this factory, the tires are built there, and then they're assembled on the assembly line at Correct. the very end. So that Correct. that makes sense. Very very similar to that, actually. Yeah. So let's let's jump over to the managing of this company. Obviously, 
you're the second generation, your dad and his brothers are running it. And now your dad is still involved and your brothers are running it. How do you guys manage it? Is there a lot of fighting? Is there a lot of discussion? <laughs> what's, what's that like? <laughs> well, first thing, uh, we're an Italian family, so we're very passionate <laughs> and we get pretty loud. But uh, all jokes aside, so so we were very fortunate enough in terms of the second generation to be given an opportunity to buy into the company. So my father's brothers four years ago wanted to retire. And so my brothers and I got together and said, okay, you know, this is our chance to finally become owners of this business that we've been born into, basically, right? We were literally born into this company. It's funny that each one of my brothers and I each took a different path from the company. So as the company was growing, I'm going to say that the organizational chart for a little while was pretty flat. You know, it was my father on top and then his brothers at the bottom and then everybody else under them. And it worked very well. I mean, obviously they built this and grew this business to, to what it is today, right? But, you know, when we're coming up in the business, we kind of had to find our own way. And I'm not, not only talking about myself, I'm also talking about my cousins and, uh, and others that came within the company. And so my brothers and I kind of like took our own paths. I went more the path of design engineering, marketing sales. One of my other brothers went into operations. Uh, my other brother went into, into account management, which is a, a big part of what we do as well for our clients. And so, yeah, we basically were given this opportunity and we're like, you know, this is our chance. Luckily, we came from a family where nothing's handed to you. You have to work to earn it. And so we worked at it and, you know, we made a, a good uh, case for it and, and made a good proposal. And luckily, you know, they give us the opportunity to, to, to buy into the company. And so yeah. my uncles have retired. And so right now, the owners of the business are my father, who's the uh, president and CEO. Myself, I'm, as I mentioned, senior vice president uh, in charge of design, marketing, and sales. My brother, Josue, is in charge of operations. So he's VP of operations. And my other brother, Nicholas, is uh, vice president as well. And he helps me on the account management and sales side of the business. Yeah, I want to go into, because I know the, the, the listeners are going are gonna to hear this and maybe not quite get it. So I've done, I've had conversations with quite a few people who have come in, they're second generation, they've come into their parents' business. And I've heard a couple of times, you know, some people just basically inherit the company, but a lot of the time you're buying into the company. The reason yeah. is because this is your dad or your mom's nest egg right. and they're going to retire and they want to cash out somehow and they're still alive and they're going to be around for a you know, long time. And so... It's more of a um, of of an you're essentially acquiring you're buying the company just like any other acquisition. Correct. Yeah. The, the thing is, and, and maybe I don't know if you thought of this, but it makes sense, and I'm sure you can structure that deal in a way that lets you earn a certain piece over a certain amount of time. But then I often think, okay, so what happens? Maybe that worked, you know, the last generation. You're going to have a billion dollar company on your hands when you retire. So have you thought about where this goes over that period of time, or that that is is that a long way off? Every five years, our company changes tremendously in the sense that, yeah, there's a huge growth spur every five years. I mean, we've been able to grow sales in our company between five and 10% a year, right? For the past so many years. Obviously for COVID, it kind of was stagnant for two years, but we're back up at it, right? And, it, and it's going extremely well. We do have plans to acquire other companies within our industry or within the various industries we work in. You know, it was always a dream for mine to one day go public. And I never really voiced this or, or said this, but it was just a dream of mine to one day attain that goal. Obviously, we're a little far away in sales to get there, but that's something that's one area where I want to go. So we, we kind of have every year we get together as, as a family, as owners, and uh, we'll go away for a weekend and we'll brainstorm about the future holds, not only for us, but also the third generation. Look, my, my son just turned 18 and he's going into he's in college right now, going to university. 
And, and he, you know, he, like I worked in the shop or in the factory every summer, you know, since he could, since he was 15 or 16. And I did the same when I was a kid, right? Actually, I started working when I was much younger than that. But anyhow, so now we're talking about the future, third generation. What is that going to look like? How yeah. are we going to set these guys up? Like, how can we make them avoid the obstacles that we went through coming up in the business? Because it's not like I didn't get much guidance. The guidance I got was kind of like seeing my uncles do it, or my father do it. I'm like, okay, that's kind of how you do it. Sticking around a lot, listening. But it came with its own challenges. You yeah. know, I'm the kind of character where I'm going to do something and then ask for permission later. And often, well, why do you say you want to go public? I, I just want to go back to that. You, you say that a dream of yours was to go public. Why yeah, was that your dream? Honestly, I think it would, have, it would be, it could be, and this is just a, my own personal hope, but it could be a way for the family to potentially cash out you know, some mm. money, be stable, but also for growth, for right. growth, to, to grow and extend and expand. Because our company, we never stayed the same from day one. Like I said, every five years we've grown, we've changed, we've acquired, uh, we've changed, evolved into different industries, different products. And, and so I think that would give us the opportunity to grow even further and into other markets. How did you finance? You've done a lot of acquisitions. Are you financing these acquisitions mostly through profits? Are you taking on debt for each acquisition? How do you structure those in general? So, so being very frugal, as, as uh, our family was... Listen, when my father and my uncles immigrated here, they, they, they didn't have anything. I mean, they, they were a family of seven living in a, a two-bedroom apartment. You know what I mean? They, they literally had nothing in their pockets. And so the hard work, yeah, obviously it created stability, but it made them smart in the sense that when we first started off, we didn't have the funds or they didn't have the funds to buy the machines they needed. So they would make them. They, they, they were very, very innovative at, at the beginning of, of all that stuff. And so what that led to us to do was uh, to self-finance a lot of stuff. Yeah, definitely, obviously, we work with a lot of major corporations and a lot of major financial institutions like HSBC and RBC and, and that kind of stuff. But a lot of it, for the most part, was uh, self-funded in the sense that we didn't want to take on too much debt. Everything we have, we bought through time, through profits, right? And so we own all the businesses, or sorry, we own all the buildings that we operate out of. We own all the machines that we operate with. And so that was very important for us to to hold and to to carry. It's funny. I was talking... just had a conversation last week with a guy that runs a very big footwear company and uh, hundreds of millions in sales. And I'm finding the same thing talking to you that I found talking to him. You'll see these individuals who run very, very large companies, family-owned businesses. And the assumption is, oh, these guys must just be swimming in cash. <laughs> and what I always realize is, no, no, no. They're swimming in equipment. They're swimming in buildings. Yeah, exactly. They're not swimming in cash. <laughs> exactly. No, no. Like I said, we live very uh, humbly. I mean, I don't know. My father always taught us that, you know, you love what you do. Be passionate about what you're doing. And if you don't, if you're not passionate or if, if you're not into it, just don't do it, right? Because ultimately, unfortunately or unfortunately, unfortunately, if you're not passionate about what you do, you spend obviously so many hours a day doing that that one particular job. Be content with it. Yes, obviously, we want to, everybody wants to live comfortably, but money isn't our goal. Our goal is to produce products that serve a need. That's where we find the passion. Where somebody might acquire a car and be happy with that. We acquire a machine and we're thrilled with that. You know, that's, that's where we get our, our kicks from is buying a new automated machine or a new robot and seeing it go and, and trying to find ways for it to produce not only the products we produce now, but other products. Like, you know, we always look at a machine and say, okay, this machine does X. Could it do Y? You know, could it do, Z? Could it do something else? What else could we make it do? And that's where our passion stems from. And, that, and that's really important because at the end of the day, 
as you said, you're spending your time doing the thing. You better really, really love the thing. The money will come. The money is a byproduct of doing great work. But if you're focusing on the money, it's going to be very, very hard to find passion and love in what you're doing. I'm going to tell you that anything I've personally done for money has gone to shit. So excuse my language. (laughs) It's gone to shit. I mean, it never really came about. And what I've come to notice, and this is something my father always told me. He's like, do what you love. The money's going to come. It's going to come. You'll see. And he's right. He was absolutely right. I'm passionate for design. I love design, you know, whether it's designing a product, uh, designing a house, designing anything, anything, furniture, whatever it is. I love that. I love thinking and, and trying to, again, create a solution to a client's problem. I love that. You know, no matter what it is. One last question on the business I'm curious about. How big was the company when it was handed off from the first to the second generation? How much growth has come from your generation? Okay. So yes, I only bought in five years ago. And so at that point, we're, at, we're about maybe 90 million. And in five years, we grew to 175, which is, is, is huge. That's enormous. enormous. Okay. I was supposed to hit 200. That was my goal, but COVID hit and it is what it is. But, uh, but when I started, give you a pass. after I graduated, when I got involved heavily in the company, we were at about maybe, I'm going to say 20 million. And then I'm going to say that through the hard work and effort of everybody together, you know, through marketing, sales, and, you know, exposing ourselves to the industry, our company, like I said, we grew between five and 10% every year ever since I took over the marketing and sales aspect of the company. And five and 10% really, really compounds over, over a couple decades. Really? Yeah, yeah. I mean, listen, it, it could be less, it could be more, but I mean, on average, but it does compound. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Enzo, this was awesome. Thank you so much for joining. And where can people learn more about Art Italia Group? Yeah, definitely. Check us out at uh, www.artitalia.com on all social media platforms, especially LinkedIn. It's Art Italia Group Inc. All right. Thanks so much again. Thanks, John. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, leave a rating or review on Apple or Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. It helps other people find the show and it lets us know that we're doing something right. We'll talk to you guys next time.